Chapter 26. Who's the Weird Kid? It seems as I read through these stories that there's a bit of a theme developing. Not the theme of seemingly always doing just the wrong thing at the wrong time, or the theme of not fully thinking of consequences before acting, though those are both strong themes as well. Another theme seems to be the undying attraction to girls who are just unattainable. Once I left Salmo for the big city of Langley, this was even more pronounced, as I was now exposed to high school girls, and that was a different thing altogether. One particular girl caught my eye, of course, and I locked onto her with the tenacity of a pit bull but the assertiveness of a field mouse. Of course, I found her attractive, but she was also a year older than I was and two grades above me because apparently she was so smart she had skipped a grade. Sure, totally in my league, right? Anyway, needless to say, our paths didn't cross much, but toward the end of the first year of junior high school, an opportunity presented itself and I leaped at the chance to impress. When I heard that we would be having sports day, I was super excited and a bit confused. I was confused that high school kids would be participating in water balloon tosses and three-legged races and egg and spoon relays, since this is what sports day was to me, a remnant of my glory days in elementary school. This was 1990, though, and I guess the kids weren't yet too cool to play crazy games in the name of school spirit. I was excited about sports day for at least two reasons. One, any reason to not be in class doing schoolwork was a positive thing in my life, and two, the object of my obsession, uh, affection, was actually assigned to be on my team. Of course, so were 35 other kids, but they were just background noise to me. Then my chance appeared. In the gym, a race was set up that required us, when our number was called, to race to the center of the gym, sit on a balloon until it popped, and then race back to where our team was waiting. A fantastic idea began to grow in my mind, and since I didn't vocalize it to anyone, nobody had the opportunity to tell me that it was actually a terrible idea, doomed to fail spectacularly. Here was my chance to show this girl, and really the whole student body, exactly what kind of guy I was. Which I did. Unfortunately. As my number was called, I sprinted like a cat to the center of the gym with my teammates cheering me on. I grabbed the first balloon I saw, but instead of just sitting down on it like everyone else, I upped the ante by jumping as high as I could in the air, placing the balloon under my butt, and landing with a loud crash straight onto the floor with no cushioning below. I had popped the balloon, yes, and I had also popped the bubble of popularity, the one that had kept me from being one of the cool kids. Except I hadn't. There was no cushion when I landed, because for some reason, that must only be explained by quantum physics, I had completely missed the balloon. I still held it in my adrenaline-shaken hand, completely intact. Not only had I looked like a complete weirdo, I'd lost the race. When I sheepishly sat down on the balloon, I didn't hear the pop, but I half-heartedly sprinted back to my waiting group, where I remember this girl making eye contact with me for the first time all year. Instead of a look of longing and admiration, however, it was a look that very clearly said, Who's the weird kid? Chapter 27 I have no idea what's going on. After two hard and frustrating years of wrestling in high school, I decided that it wasn't worth the effort. I remember distinctly thinking that working so hard in practice that I thought I was going to puke was not paying off enough to justify the effort, so I quit. I didn't quit so that I could start something else, I just knew that I'd had enough. Little did I know that the sport I would take up next would require more effort than I had ever expended in my life. Rugby. This was a sport that appealed to my natural recklessness and aggression. Plus, sometimes we played in the mud, so that was also great. My friend Keith had already played a couple of years of rugby, and I'd heard that he was a good player, so when he mentioned that rugby was starting up, 
I naturally followed along. Keith was the first friend I had who actually had other friends, and I considered him to be one of the cool kids. He had grown up mostly in Langley and gone to elementary school there, so he knew people, whereas I knew hardly anyone. Anyway, rugby is a game that has many rules, and many of them are subtle and difficult to interpret, leaving referees and players in a constant gray zone. This is, in one way, a good fit for the ADHD brain, but I remember after we were about 75% of the way through our season, in which we were gloriously undefeated and steamrolling other teams, I was called offside in a match. I wasn't sure what I had done wrong, so I bravely pulled Keith aside and admitted that I had no idea what offside really was and asked if he could explain it to me so that I wouldn't get called for it again. In one of the great moments of my life, Keith sheepishly admitted that he didn't really know either and that he just kind of ran around and hit people. This was a great comfort to me that even after two years of playing, he was still confused. It was almost as if not being the only one who was lost was more important than actually not being lost. Now that I say that, I think there's a lot of truth to that. One of the advantages of playing rugby was that it exposed me to some of the more popular and well-liked guys in school, but not really the cool guys who I didn't like. I got to go to their houses, laugh and joke with them, and they started to get to know me, not just as the quiet, weird kid in the Value Village clothes. One thing that we did for fun, being that we were a group of rowdy, aggressive teenage boys with more than a healthy sprinkling of ADHD across the group, was to box on the trampoline. No, I'm not talking about two guys wearing gloves trying to punch each other in the head while jumping on the trampoline. I'm talking about four guys trying to punch each other in the head while jumping on the trampoline. There were no teams, no alliances, and not really any rules. Just four crazy rugby guys punching whoever they could, wherever they could. I may have drop-kicked one friend right off the trampoline, but my memory is a bit fuzzy. This might be because of one time when my friend Josh nailed me so hard I saw stars. I was sneaking up behind him, at least I thought I was, but in reality, how do you sneak up behind someone on a trampoline? Wouldn't every step I took behind him be an obvious tip-off that I was coming? Of course it would, but I wasn't thinking that far ahead. I was only focused on my plan. Does this sound familiar? Anyway, just as I got to within striking range, Josh spun around and hit me with a spinning back fist right in the side of the head. I wobbled and went down, but not completely out. These were the kinds of things we did for fun when we didn't have rugby practice. Another little side note, while we were inflicting mild concussions on each other, we were blasting music from a stereo in the backyard. The soundtrack to my near miss with unconsciousness? Simon and Garfunkel's greatest hits. Because what goes better together than hippie songs about peace and love, sung with delicate harmonies and acoustic guitars, and trying to knock your friends out cold for fun? Nothing goes better together. Chapter 28. Because, of course I did. One time our family went out to this place called Castle Fun Park for our family night activity. This outing involved activities such as mini-golf, arcade games, and this awesome game where you got to hit a punching bag as hard as you could, and then it would tell you how tough you were. Needless to say, this is what I spent quite a few of my tokens on. The other main attraction for me was the batting cage. I was never able to play organized sports when I was a young kid. With seven kids on a shoestring budget and a dad who worked a lot, it just wasn't an option. I always thought that maybe I could have been a decent baseball player, but never got the chance to play outside a PE class, until my teacher described me one year with the following glowing praise. Ted is not the most gifted athlete, but he does try hard. This was a blow to my self-image, I assure you, and I am forever grateful that Mr. Schimpf found it vital for me to know this in writing. 
Anyway, the batting cages at Castle Fun Park came in a variety of speeds, either baseball or softball. I loved it. I found that I was able to make good contact with the ball and even hit a few towering home runs. The release of aggression from the combination of repeatedly smashing a punching bag and repeatedly smashing a ball with a bat, however, did not reduce my pent-up aggression, but seemed to have some sort of igniting effect on it. So much so that by the time we got home from the activity and were making our way into the house, I spotted, with my eagle eye, a small plastic baseball bat lying in the carport. It was not one of those giant red toy ones. It was a smaller, thinner, bright yellow version, and it was just asking for it. So in a frenzy of aggression, I grabbed the bat and smashed it down as hard as I could on the driveway in front of me. Rather than being able to enjoy my Hulk moment, I was sent reeling backwards with a sudden sharp pain in my face. I had smashed the bat so hard that it broke in two pieces, sending the larger head of the bat hurtling back up towards me where it smashed me in the mouth, splitting my upper lip in two. Not my lip itself, but the little place between the lip and the nose, which I'm sure has a proper name, but I don't know what it is. What I do know is that I have a permanent scar in that location from my adventures in driveway baseball. By the way, that area is called the philtrum or infranasal depression. I like the word philtrum, and I like the fact that it is spelled like the name Phil, because when I think of someone named Phil, I think of someone who has a mustache, and the philtrum is the mustache part of the face. Thank you, science, for making sense. Chapter 29. I Fought the Law The internet is useful for a lot of things. If you like weird stuff... There are lots of weird people talking about weird stuff and taking pictures of weird stuff and probably even writing fan fiction about weird stuff. If you want to watch live streaming video of weirdos taking pictures of other weirdos writing fan fiction, I'm sure you could find it somewhere. Also, it's useful for finding information. I know I'm not saying anything revolutionary when I say that not enough people use the internet in a way that improves their lives. But what I'm really saying is that back when I was in high school, the internet would have been kind of useful for when you heard something that sounded true, but you weren't sure. Back then, you basically had two choices, believe it or don't. You thought I was going to say believe it or not? Maybe? But that wouldn't have been grammatically correct, because if I had separated it into two sentences, they would be I believe it or I don't believe it. I wouldn't say I not believe it unless I was a caveman. This grammar lesson is a courtesy. No need to thank me. Anyway, this is a really awkward introduction to a very eventful evening for me, my friend Greg, and two of my younger brothers. It was an election year in BC, though I can't remember exactly what year it was, but that's probably for the best once I get finished with this story. Someone told me at school that if you vandalize an election sign before the election, then it's a felony, but if you do it after the election, then it's only a misdemeanor. Let's say for a moment that this was true. What is missing from that statement is that either way, it is a crime. The kind that if you're caught, you might have a criminal record. In my mind, and in the minds of my friend and brothers, misdemeanor basically meant that someone would be mad at you and that that would be the end of it. Of course, we didn't want to risk any serious jail time, so we dutifully waited until after the winner had been announced on election night and then began our own campaign of destruction. Imagine saying that in the voice of a movie trailer narrator. Oh, did I mention that the information we were told was not actually accurate? That the seriousness of the charge really just depends on the seriousness of the crime? Yeah, like I said, Snopes.com is useful for cleaning up cobwebs of baloney, which is a strange picture, cobwebs made from baloney. 
I've always liked bologna, by the way. It doesn't get the respect it deserves, especially considering that it may not even be meat, yet manages to really taste like meat. That's not easy. Just ask tofu. On this election night, we decided that our main vehicle of destruction would be, you guessed it, fire. After all, the pyromaniac tendencies nurtured as a young boy weren't easily quelled just because I had been transplanted to the suburbs. Also, the election took place in the fall, which meant that firecrackers and fireworks were being illegally sold out of many high school lockers in the backs of cars. Fire and explosives and election signs, oh my. I think the first sign we tackled was a large wooden billboard mounted on a metal frame. This wasn't the kind of sign you'd see in someone's front yard. It was displayed in a field just past the sidewalk facing the street. Naturally, we decided that this was no place for a sign so glorious, and when no cars were nearby, we moved the sign out into the middle of the street, blocking most of two lanes. Then we hid in the bushes to watch the inconvenience unfold. It was disappointing. Most people just drove around the billboard, but one guy actually stopped his car in the middle of the street and, with an annoyed look on his face, dragged the sign off to the side of the road. This was a mild payoff for us, but I'm not sure what we were really expecting. Did we actually think someone would come crashing through the sign at full speed, like in a movie? We decided that we needed to take it a step further, so we approached a newspaper box. You know those wooden boxes where the paper boy has the papers dropped off for him to deliver the next day? Well, this newspaper box still had a few papers in the bottom, and it was made of wood, and we had fire, so it didn't take long for us to come up with a daring plan. This time, instead of an innocuous billboard, we dragged the newspaper box out into the middle of the street, set the papers and box on fire, and then ran and hid in the bushes to watch. This plan had a much better outcome. It was similar, with a driver pulling to a stop in the middle of the road, only this time he got out and stood there, looking mildly panicked. This was before the days of cell phones, so he couldn't exactly call 911. I don't remember everything that happened, except that the situation filled us with great joy, and we took off running and laughing until we came to our next stop, a community mailbox. We thought it would be a good idea to light off a few bottle rockets and drop them into the mail slot. Who knows what damage was done, but it felt very satisfying. Then we turned around and saw a simple plastic sign endorsing a candidate planted on someone's front lawn. I volunteered to light the sign on fire, imagining that because it was plastic, it would just melt and drip onto the grass. Instead, it lit up like a flamethrower. I don't know what they put into that plastic, but once that sign caught fire, the flames were shooting up into the sky high enough to reflect in the second floor window. This was almost more than we could have ever hoped for. We celebrated by running for our lives, as we knew that it would only be a matter of time before someone came running out of the house to investigate. We set off on a path of destruction, lighting fires and blowing things up all across North Langley that night. I'm not sure where our parents thought we were or what they thought we were doing, but it seems a bit odd that we were able to go out and wreak this kind of havoc completely unchecked. Well, unchecked until we arrived at a local elementary school with designs to light a large wooden real estate billboard on fire. We had completely exhausted our supply of firecrackers and all but one lighter. It seemed that as our night went on and our supplies dwindled, the need to up the ante had only been heightened. Thus, whereas at the beginning of the night, just moving the sign onto the road was fun, by the end of the night we were ready to torch the city. It just so happened that as I flicked the lighter to try to light the sign on fire, a pickup truck pulled into the parking lot and began racing towards us. My quicker-thinking friend and brothers took off running into the darkened field, but I just stood there frozen, not knowing what to do. An older man got out of the truck and approached me calmly, asking what we were up to. Since he had seen me lighting the sign on fire, and I knew that he had, I knew there was no point in denying it. 
I just needed to come up with a realistic story as to why. The best I could come up with? Uh, we were cold and thought that maybe if we lit a small fire to warm our hands that no harm would come of it. As soon as the words were out of my mouth, I knew that my awesome story would not be convincing anybody. The man then informed me that he was the fire chief. I pretended like this incredible information had no impact on me other than to increase my admiration for the man. He then said that there had been a number of suspicious fires reported all through the neighborhoods of Langley that night, and that he wondered if I knew anything about it. I asked him where those fires were located, and he proceeded to describe the precise location of each fire that we had set throughout the evening. Then came the time for my boldest lie of the night. Oh, that's weird that you say there were fires in those places, I said to him, because we walked that exact same route tonight, and we didn't see any of those fires. I felt I was doing a good job of being believable, and now it was the fire chief's turn to look at me with a stunned expression. Of course, what had stunned him was my audacity in saying something so ridiculous and expecting him to believe it. Despite my quick thinking in answering his questions, I wasn't quick enough on my feet to give him a false name, address, and phone number when he asked for them. He then said that he would be calling my parents within a few days to ask them some more questions. He managed to get the same information out of Greg, which led to both of us keeping vigil beside our home phones for the next few days. In the end, he never did call, and my parents never found out. I'd like to say that this close call was the end of our forays into the wild, but that would be another audacious lie. Chapter 30. Unrighteous Indignation Early one morning after spending the night at Greg's house, my dad phoned and told me to come home right away. This was not the panicked or concerned dad voice. This was the barely withheld murderous rage dad voice. I had no idea why I was urgently needed at home, but my mind filled with possibilities as I made my way back. Maybe I was finally busted for something. Maybe we were moving again. Maybe a million different things. I was not, however, prepared for the answer. When I got home, he informed me that my brother Mike and his friend Mark had stolen the family car the night before and gone on a joyride around Walnut Grove until they finally crashed it into a hydroelectric kiosk on someone's front lawn. Did I mention that my dad was in upper management at the hydroelectric company at the time? I'm sure that helped him deal with the 3 a.m. phone call in a very calm way. My dad informed me that because of Mike's decision-making deficit, all of us kids were permanently banned from all sleepovers. He had reasoned that his kids could simply not be trusted at sleepovers, and so the best strategy was to remove the temptation altogether for all of us. I was livid. How dare he? How dare he remove my sleepover privileges for something that someone else had done? How could he hold me responsible for the actions of my brother? This was completely unfair. However, his decision was binding and final, and I sulked in my room for quite a while, fuming at the terrible treatment I was receiving. Of course, the irony of this situation is that, in fact... The night before, I wasn't simply hanging out with Greg, eating popcorn and discussing life goals. Instead, we were cruising around in his car trying to find fights to watch or to get involved in, and when that had failed, we'd ended the evening by donating several eggs to a few different houses and cars in his neighborhood. This was actually a fairly mild sleepover for Greg and me, and my dad was absolutely correct in his strategy. So funny, though. The ability to compartmentalize was once again apparent as I genuinely did feel that I was being treated unfairly and that I hadn't done anything to deserve my dad's distrust. I was angry at Mike for blowing it for the rest of us, but also shocked at the level he had gone to. On a side note, years later, 
Mike told me that this was actually not the first time he had done this. It was just the first time he was caught. Chapter 31 Oh, you're going to get it now. One of the paradoxes that I embody is that despite my aggressive nature, love of all things painful and destructive, willingness to take risks, and historically imposing physical stature, I've never been in a fight in my life. I don't know if it's because people were intimidated by me or because I'm just such a gentle and likable guy that people had no reason to fight me, but I have made it this far in life without having to go at it with anyone. Of course, as I mentioned earlier, I was punched in the face by my friend Garnet and by my brother Mike, but I don't really count those as fights because the shots were unexpected, didn't do any damage, and were not reciprocated. Using this definition, it is safe to say that I haven't been in a fight even though I have punched a few people in the face. What a great opening line for a cover letter, by the way. Imagine applying for a job and that was your introduction to your future employer. I've never been in a fight, even though I've punched a few people in the face. Please hire me to interact with your customers. The first time I punched someone was in grade 10, in the middle of a rugby game. Now, rugby is a vicious, brutal sport, and I felt completely justified in punching my opponent in the service of a victory. The sport is so great that I was able to disguise my punch as part of my tackle, and I didn't even receive a penalty on the play. At the time, however, I didn't intentionally disguise it because I was going off potentially faulty information that it was legal to punch in rugby. I now know that it wasn't, but I didn't stop to question things like that back then. As I mentioned, when I was 13, our move from Salmo to Langley resulted in a major plummet from near the top of the social ladder to near the bottom. I tried desperately to fit in with the new breed of cool kids, but for a number of reasons beyond my control, this was not going to happen. When I was in grade 10, I began dating an older girl against the strongly stated wishes of my parents. While they might not have approved of her or my choices at the time, and while I look back on the relationship with some questions of my own, it did lead to a turning point in my life. This girl was into alternative music, alternative fashion, and was, in essence, a hipster before hipsters were hipsters. That's kind of like the uber hipster. Anyway, she taught me to do what you like and just be yourself. The complication with this approach to life is that sometimes being yourself alienates you from the crowd, and if you want to be part of that crowd, you have a choice to make. I remember distinctly making this choice one day in grade 10. I was listening to an arrogant, fashion-conscious, exclusive dude put down people around him, laughing at their appearance and relative poverty, and the thought struck me, I really don't like this guy. Why do I want him to like me? I realized that if I ever did break through the glass ceiling and become acceptable to people like him, I wouldn't even want to hang out with them anyway because they made me sick to my stomach. It was at that point that I decided that I would just be myself. And if I needed to change myself to be accepted by people, then those weren't the kind of people I wanted to be accepted by anyway. Thus began a change in philosophy, from trying to learn and perfect the running man and the funky chicken and memorizing lyrics from top 40 songs, to skateboarding, shopping at thrift stores for vintage clothes, and listening to punk and heavy metal music. It was during this same year that I met my before-mentioned best friend Keith, who was going through a similar transition, and together we formed a two-man band called Who Farted in My Cereal? Our main band activities included terrible jam sessions, writing no songs, and making lots of jokes about being rock stars, while gaining a small level of notoriety as weirdos. Wouldn't you know it, this change in attitude actually led to my having more friends than before, but they were actually people I wanted to be around. 
Just as I was beginning to gain some momentum socially, my parents announced that we were moving again, this time to the city of Nanaimo on Vancouver Island. This was another stomach punch since I couldn't believe I would have to start all over again. This time, however, things went a bit smoother as I was equipped with my new attitude. Consistent with my school experience from all grades, my friends came from disparate places. Most of the time, the only thing my friends had in common was me, a reflection of the variety of interests that I had and the chameleon ability I had to fit in wherever I wanted to. Of course, one of the first kids who befriended me was another kid on the social fringe. He was actually good to me, so I felt bad when a few months later I accidentally hit him in the face with an elbow while demonstrating my incredible martial arts skills before our chemistry class. We were having the conversation because my brother Mike was friends with this guy's younger brother, and we had recently all met at a park near our house to have boxing fights while wearing only karate sparring gloves. Because that's what we did for fun. Punched each other in the head. Anyway, this kid was the BC karate champion in his age group, a couple of years younger than I was. I was the big kid, though, so of course they wanted me to fight him. The fight started off with a shock as he leapt forward and began hammering me with punches in the back of the head. I won't go into detail describing what happened next, but in the end, he was lying on his back, semi-conscious, mumbling something about not being able to see. It was a moment of glory for sure. When I was talking about it with his older brother, he dutifully pointed out the difference in our ages, leading to me to demonstrate my aforementioned skills, accidentally smashing his nose. I felt really bad about it, but class was just about to start and I didn't really even get a chance to apologize. I don't remember even speaking to him again after that event. Ugh. One day at lunchtime, I was standing with my oddball mishmash of friends talking in a small group in the atrium front hallway part of the school when out of nowhere, this kid came running and jumped into the middle of us and started body checking each of us yelling, Mosh Pit! while his friends looked on and laughed. While this is something that I could see myself doing, the thing is, we didn't even know this kid, and he was kind of known for this sort of obnoxious stuff. So, as the lunch supervisor came over and grabbed him by the arm to haul him off to the office, I took the opportunity to feel completely justified in quickly punching him in the face as he walked past. It wasn't a hard punch, or he probably would have gone down like the karate champ in the park, but he reacted by screaming at me that I was dead! I was curious how this little string bean felt so confident in screaming these threats at me and laughed it off, aided by the pats on the back and chuckles of my friends who were happy that I had done what all of them had the impulse control to not do. Later that day I heard a rumor that the kid I had punched had a dad who was a member of the Hells Angels. These kinds of rumors tend to grow like weeds with high school kids with little actual proof or evidence required. However, his cockiness in assuring me that I was a dead man juxtaposed with his actual physical ability, seemed to give some legitimacy to the story. I'll tell you, for the next few days, I was pretty nervous, looking over my shoulder for some big burly biker to come and shoot me or hit me with a pipe or something. In the end, the whole thing blew over, and I escaped with nothing but a good story. Chapter 32 Draws in Notebook and Imagines Being a rock star. Math and I were never very good friends. My brain is good at lots of things, but math was never really one of them. I got lots of A's in elementary school, but my perpetual grade in math was a B. Once I got to high school, however, B's were a distant memory. I remember my math teacher's names, Mr. Beale, Mr. Leung, Mr. Johnston. Actually, I don't remember my grade 11 math teacher's name. However, I remember that he looked like he'd rather be anywhere than in math class, which was something we had in common. 
My working memory and attention problems wreaked havoc with my ability to learn math. When the operations were fairly straightforward, I could figure them out in my head with my mental math skills being pretty decent. However, when it became multi-step math with formulas to remember and rules to follow, I quickly became lost. It would basically go like this. Step one, got it. Step two, got it. Step three, wait, you lost me. Step four, I still don't have step three and I have no idea what step four is. Step five, draws in notebook, imagines being a rock star. I remember there was this kid who sat at the front of the class who looked like a major stoner. He hung out in the smoke pit, rocked a mullet long after they were in style, and wore tight jeans and a leather jacket. I'm not sure I ever heard him utter a single word during all the time he was in my class. He got 98% in the course. Naturally, it did wonders for my self-esteem that I couldn't grasp even the simplest concept and this kid was killing it with seemingly no effort. Two things stand out to me from my Math 11 class. One, I spent a lot of time reading Street and Smith's Pro Basketball Preview magazine and wondering about this player named Shaquille O'Neal, who was apparently quite good. And two, the best moment of the year was sponsored by Twisted Sister. In our school, during the breaks between classes, they played music through the PA system. It was actually a good idea and a bit ahead of its time, and I remember one rough day in particular when I had math during the last period before lunch. If you could get graded for clock watching and calculating the number of minutes left in class, I would have got an A for sure. As the minute hand moved into the magical place, the bell rang and the sweet, sweet sounds of Twisted Sister filled the hallway. We're not gonna take it. Not sure that's the best anthem to inspire high school students, but man, the sun was shining, math class was over, and I felt like kicking something out of sheer joy and excitement, and I wasn't gonna take it anymore. Then, of course, I had math the next day and nothing was different. Because of my chronic problems with math, my dad, who was an accountant and naturally good at the subject, decided to help me in Math 11 and spent time each day with me going over my homework. He would impatiently explain concepts repeatedly and I would frustratedly and defiantly eventually learn them. His go-to line was, What do you mean you don't understand? I just explained it to you. I don't blame him, not in the least. When something comes naturally to you, it's hard to understand how others can't just see what you can see. It's why great athletes don't always make great coaches, and why I don't understand why procrastinating is so hard for some people. I'm just a natural at it. Anyway, during the time that my dad was helping me with my math, I was actually doing quite well, and for my interim report card, I had 83% in math. This was the best I had ever done in math in my life, and I was feeling great about it. My parents must have been feeling great too, believing I had turned the corner and was finally able to take the reins. So, the homework help faded out. Of course, I was only one of seven kids in school, and everyone except the oldest struggled with something or other, so there was only so much help to go around. Then the unit we were working on changed, and I was back to having no idea what was going on around me, not asking for help, and not progressing. By the time my actual report card came out at the end of the term, I was down to 35% in the class. That is a serious drop. Do the math. Think of how bad I would have to do in order to go from 83 to 35%. One time I remember getting a test handed to me. I thought I knew what I was doing and began the first of 20 questions. I quickly got stumped, not knowing what step to do next. So I skipped to the next question, where the same thing happened. I continued this sequence of getting stumped, then skipping to the next question, until I realized I had skipped all the way to the last question and didn't know how to do any of them. 
I had got stumped on every single one. As the panic and self-loathing set in, I went back to the beginning, desperate to wipe the fog off the window and see if I couldn't salvage something from this shipwreck. In the end, I got one out of twenty on the test. Five percent. The one mark was actually made of two half marks from two different questions I had taken a run at. I was no stranger to bombing math tests or schoolwork, generally speaking, but this was a particularly crushing blow. To not know a single answer on the entire test. It was only amplified when the stoner up front, with a frozen, humorless mask for a face, quietly accepted his mark of 100% without even a hint of satisfaction. What is interesting, however, is that just as in previous years, as I approached the final exam, we figured out what I would need to get on the provincial final in order to pass the class. I don't know how we figured it out, because I'm not sure I was capable of that at the time. However, we determined that I would need to get 78% on the final to get 50% for the year and be finished with math forever, as Math 12 was not a requirement to graduate in BC. I busted my butt and brain studying and learning math for the next few days leading up to the exam, and wouldn't you know it, I passed Math 11 and ran from the classroom knowing I was never going to take it anymore. Chapter 33. The World's Longest Backstory Up to this point in my life, I was really only interested in sports that involved smashing, strength, and violence in some degree. I remember when I moved halfway through my kindergarten year, my first day on the playground, I sized up the kids around me, saw one who was about the same size I was, and did what I did at home with my dad and brothers. I tackled him without warning and began to wrestle. Of course, given that he was a complete stranger to me and I gave him no warning, I'm sure the message that this was fun was lost somewhere in the delivery of headlocks and body slams. This hardwired tendency to be aggressive led me into sports like wrestling, rugby, and punching stuff. When I was first introduced to basketball in grade 7, my experience was a bit skewed because I was very tall for my age. When you were in elementary school, the hoops were only at 8 feet high. I was close to 6 feet, as were two of my classmates, one of whom was actually super athletic. This meant that when other schools played us, they actually had to contend with Nathan dunking on them. Not a typical concern for rural grade 7 basketball in the Kootenays. After that, I lost interest in basketball because I thought it was a wimpy sport where you weren't allowed to be physical at all, and if you couldn't smash, I was out. I remember actually saying this out loud when asked if I was going to join the basketball team in grade 8. However, in grade 10, I began playing basketball up at the church with my friends and some of the men from our congregation. There, I discovered that basketball, especially church basketball, had the potential to be very aggressive and physical. This led me to reconsider my previous position and to fully embrace a sport that I would never actually become very good at. As I mentioned, just as I was finally starting to make some friends at school in Langley, my parents informed us that we were moving to Nanaimo on Vancouver Island. The locals also called it Nanaimhole, and in a very ironic and fitting turn of events, there was a strip mall downtown with a marquee out in front that said, The Heart of Nanaimo, right above the sign for a liquor store. I was not happy to move to Nanaimo for a variety of reasons, not the least of which was leaving my highly successful rugby team. The school I was moving to was brand new that year, Dover Bay Secondary. In a rare and, to me, weird turn of events, it was decided that it would be unfair to students who were going into the last year of high school to have to switch schools and leave their friends for that year, and as such, Dover Bay had no grade 12s in its first year of existence. At grade 11, we were the oldest kids in the school. There were certainly advantages to this arrangement for those of us in grade 11, 
but one area where it was a major drawback was sports. With teams made up entirely of grade 11s and no grade 12s, we were definitely outmanned in almost every athletic contest. In fact, some kids, knowing how bad it would be, refused to sign up for sports teams because they didn't want to get destroyed and humiliated. As for me, I had already invested several years of my life in getting destroyed and humiliated, often at my own hands, so this did not present a barrier. One teacher in particular, finding out that I'd had experience playing rugby, was very excited to tell me that because I was basically the only kid in school who knew anything about rugby, I would be looked to as a leader and someone to build a team around. After hearing this, I panicked, thinking, I still don't even know what offside means. How on earth am I supposed to be the leader? The pressure got to me quickly, and within a week before we had had even one practice, I told the teacher I wouldn't be playing rugby after all. The look on his face was a mixture of disappointment and genuine confusion. It was hard for him to understand why a big, strong kid would turn down the opportunity to take on such a role. For me, as soon as I told him, I felt instant relief. Later in the year, when I walked with some friends in the freezing cold to watch the rugby team play against another school, I stood there in sub-zero temperatures, so cold that my lips wouldn't work anymore, and congratulated myself for making the decision that would spare me having to wear short shorts in that kind of weather. Along with the anxiety of being a leader while feeling incompetent, one of the main reasons that I quit rugby was to focus on basketball. Possessing the knowledge and permission to be a bit of a bruiser in the sport, I had embraced it with enthusiasm. Unfortunately, hardly anyone else in the school did the same. The minimum number of basketball players on a team is five because that's how many are required to be on the court. Our team had six, including a burned-out rocker, a burned-out skater, a burned-out surfer, see the theme here, a notorious street fighter, and a future alcoholic. And me. For three of us, it was our first experience playing organized basketball. Think of this, a team where half the players had never played basketball before. In grade 11, the writing was on the wall so visibly that the basketball coach himself quit before the season even started. He suggested that a former student of his volunteer to coach the team, so we were now taking instruction for someone who was not much older than we were and almost eight inches shorter, who regaled us with stories of his glorious high school basketball career. Mostly, we just ran lines in practice. I literally don't remember one thing from my basketball practices with that coach, whose name I can't remember other than one obviously untrue story about how he'd won a jump ball against a player a foot taller than him just by being in the right position. That and sprinting until I thought I was going to puke. As the season began, we really had no idea what we were up against. We were blissfully unaware of the tragedy that was about to unfold. Our record that year was 1-21. Our lone win came in the 21st game of the season. We had a few close calls during the year, losing by a few points here and there, including one particularly memorable game in which I had fouled out along with another player, leaving us with only four players on the court. The team played shorthanded for almost two full quarters and actually mounted an epic comeback, only to fall short at the finish line. I was somewhat prone to fouling, to no one's surprise, although I started the season playing rather gingerly. I was afraid to get called for a foul, so I would often play matador defense, allowing my opponent to get past me and push me out of the way for rebounds. After a few games, my coach pulled me aside and told me it was okay to get called for a foul if the foul was necessary. Armed with his permission, I'd proceeded to foul out of the next three games in a row, leading to another conversation with the coach who told me, okay, maybe not quite so much with the fouling. There were three times that season when we lost by more than 80 points. Those were not fun games. I remember one game in particular, 
where I seemed to just run from end to end, watching us turn the ball over, watching them score, and then watching the same scenario repeat itself continuously. I remember distinctly thinking at one point, hey, this is just like running lines in practice. No wonder he gets us to run so much. In our lone win that season, a stubby little man with a full red beard and a purple bandana headband, I kid you not, he looked like a cross between a hobbit, Larry the Cable Guy, and the lead singer of Suicidal Tendencies, who I listened to a lot, by the way, as a sign of how hardcore I was, kept smashing me in the back under the hoop. That little aside in the middle of that sentence was actually pretty long, and by the time I went back to my main sentence, I couldn't even remember what I was talking about. I had to go back and check. You probably do too. Anyway, he kept smashing me, but we were actually winning, so I was maintaining self-control and playing my best. At one point, very late in the game, with about a minute to go, he lowered his shoulder and drove it into my lower back for the last time. I looked up at the scoreboard, saw that the victory was assured, and then put my elbow in his chest and my right foot behind his, pushing my elbow backwards and bringing my foot forwards in a move that actually has a name, but I don't know what it is. I want to call it sweeping the leg, but I think that's just from Karate Kid when the evil sensei instructs one of his students to injure Daniel to prevent him from going further in the All-Valley tournament. I remember watching that as a kid and thinking, how would it hurt someone to elbow the back of their knee when it was already bent? And also being very annoyed with Daniel for being such a crying baby. What an annoying hero for a movie. I wanted Johnny to win. Well, I do now anyway. Back then, the movie just inspired me to want to learn karate, which I pursued by draping a blanket over the top of a doorway and launching flying kicks at it for one afternoon, after which time my love affair with karate was over. Anyway, how the heck did I get here? Uh, Oh, I took this little bearded munchkin hillbilly to the ground with a hard and dirty play, which resulted in my final foul and being ejected from the game. But because we'd won, I didn't care at all, and it totally felt worth it. As you can see... Even though I had transitioned from wrestling to rugby to basketball, the undercurrent of aggression was still very much alive and well. Following a year at Dover Bay, my parents informed us that we were moving back to Langley. While this was incredibly good news for me, it wasn't good news for everyone in the family. My youngest brother had just finished kindergarten and would have to start all over again. My oldest brother had just graduated from high school after having to start at a new school for his grade 12 year and would be left behind all alone in town because he had enrolled in college. For me, it meant a reunion with my best friend Keith and a return to civilization. Even though Nanaimo was only a two-hour ferry ride from Vancouver, it felt like a million miles away and I couldn't wait to get back. I remember knocking on Keith's door that first day back in Langley. He answered it pretty much looking exactly the same, except much more like a skater and he had this nasty orange hair, the kind you have when the dye job just didn't quite work out the way the bottle said it would. It was great to be back, and we picked up where we'd left off, except for some reason, neither of us played rugby that year. The coaches asked for us, and our rugby peers wondered why not, but I think they just eventually dismissed us as a couple of skater dudes who were too burned out to do anything productive. In reality, we weren't burned out at all. We just looked like it. Anyway, back at Walnut Grove Secondary, I decided to join the basketball team. Unlike Dover Bay, however, where anyone who wanted to play was welcomed with open arms, Walnut Grove would be having tryouts. I remember being really nervous about having to try out, and so I played extra hard and worked extra hard to make sure I got on the team. I was told later that I had virtually no chance of being cut, but I had no idea of that at the time. I guess that's kind of typical of me and probably a lot of people with ADHD. We alternate between thinking we're better than we are and thinking we're worse than we are. Rarely are we accurate in perceiving ourselves. 
Anyway, there was this kid who was trying out for the team, and I found him obnoxious. Walnut Grove was definitely a part of Langley that had more well-off families than other areas, but I never felt like one of the preppy rich kids because there were so many kids in my family, so the money my dad made was spread very thin. This kid, however, looked and acted like a rich kid. Looking back on it now with my grown-up perspective, I can see that he was insecure and desperately wanted people to like him. It was probably very hard for him to try out for the team and face the prospect of failure, because he actually wasn't very athletic or skilled at all. That's my adult perspective. My teenage perspective was that he was obnoxious. So of course, being the aggressive kid that I was, whenever I had the chance to foul this kid, I took full advantage of it. I remember one particularly regrettable incident in which he was trying to either post me up or box me out, if you don't know what that is. Both of them require one player slamming their butt up against the other player to try to move him out of the position that you want him on the floor, and kept ramming his healthy-sized butt into me. When no one was looking, I hit him with a knee in the butt to try and get him off me. However, either I aimed poorly or he was insecure for no reason, if you know what I mean, because he crumpled to the floor, literally crying in pain. I was shocked. I didn't think I'd hit him that hard, story of my life, but my knee had actually landed a deadly blow right in his junk. I still don't know how that was possible considering his back was to me, but I remember people looking at me like, what did you do? And because I was genuinely confused about what had happened, I guess that look passed for innocence because nobody ever asked me about it. I just realized that this never-ending description of my high school athletic career is all just backstory to my main story. I think that might have to be some sort of backstory record. I think people with ADHD tend to get lost in the backstory sometimes. Well, actually, I know that we do. We know how it all relates to the main story, but the listener will often get confused and or annoyed that we can't just get to the point. So why do we do this? I think it has something to do with being habitually misunderstood. If you look through many of the stories I've told so far, there seems to be a recurring theme of people misreading me or my intentions. I think we are misread so often, and usually not in a positive way, that it becomes very important to fully explain ourselves so that the listener can get the full Technicolor picture. I think Technicolor is probably a really old-fashioned way of saying vivid picture. I guess the modern equivalent would be, what, the full 4K picture? Anyway, I made the team, and we went about losing basketball games. Even though we were better than the Dover Bay team that I played on, that wasn't saying much. We continued to get beaten and beaten up, losing big, but occasionally winning. I came off the bench for the most part as we had a full complement of semi-skilled players, all of us roughly the same size. Early on in the season, our coach nicknamed me Ted Shred during one of our practices, or just Shred for short. At first, I loved this nickname as I thought it embodied my aggressive style, but then I heard that it was also the name of some dude on the Top 40 radio station who was a traffic reporter on a bike or something. That diluted my love of the nickname, but I was still okay with it. It was the first and only nickname I've ever been given in my life, and namesake notwithstanding, it was a pretty good fit for my approach to sports. I remember in one game, I fouled out in three minutes. In another, we played against Brookswood, another Langley school. Interestingly, even though Walnut Grove was seen universally as the snob school, that's how we saw Brookswood. I wouldn't say they were our crosstown rivals because that would give the impression that we were somehow competitive with them, which we weren't. They had a couple of guys on their team who were skilled and stood at least six foot six or taller. I realize that currently that's kind of a minimum requirement for a successful basketball team, but in 1994 in Langley, that was unique and they were killing teams. We knew we weren't making the playoffs that year with as many losses as we'd had, 
but in one of our final league games, we hosted Brookswood, and we were psyched up for the contest. I think it was David looking forward to getting some cheap shots in on Goliath before inevitably being pounded into the ground, which is how it actually played out. They beat us badly, but not without wondering what crazy pills we'd taken before the game. I remember one play in particular, in which one of our team members committed a really hard foul against one of their big guys, sending him sprawling to the floor. Our bench celebrated the foul like it was a spectacular play, and our player was treated to some high fives from those of us on the floor at the time. I remember making eye contact with the Brookswood player as he was being helped to his feet and seeing the genuine confusion on his face as he wondered what we were so excited about considering the score was lopsided in their favor. I suppose he had never had the experience of being the underdog who had a chance to damage the champion, so he couldn't possibly relate to the exhilaration that comes with that chance. On my particular team, aggression was not just tolerated, it was celebrated, and thus to be named Ted Shred and to stand out for that reason was a real badge of honor to me. I knew I wouldn't be leading the team in scoring anytime soon, although that did happen one time and it was great, but that's another story. So I focused on playing my role the best I could. Toward the end of our season, we played an exhibition game against a club team from Bellingham, Washington. They probably weren't that good. You know, I just had to delete something because it would have given the story away, but just take my word for it. They weren't that good. It was a tough, physical, low-scoring game, as you might expect, given our track record, and it came down to the final seconds their team had been fouled and had a player going to the free throw line for a single free throw that might tie the game. I was sitting on the bench where I had been parked most of the game. At this point, our coach called out, Shred! I was shocked that he was calling me into the game. He told me to go out there and do one job only, grab the rebound and or stop their guy from getting the rebound. I guess that's kind of like two jobs, but they're tied together, so it's really like one job. Plus, it sounds better if the person says, I have a job for you, than if they say, I have possibly two jobs for you, but if you do one of them, it might be good enough because the two jobs are kind of tied together. Anyway, if their player missed and we could get the rebound or stop them, we would secure the victory. My teammates slapped me on the back and encouraged me, as seemingly this was the job for which I had been preparing for through this incredibly long backstory. I checked into the game and took my place along the lane. I had the inside position and every advantage to succeed in this crucial assignment. Well, every advantage except one. I couldn't pay attention to save my life. I remember that I was looking at all of the players on our bench, our coach, and the shooter, but I wasn't paying attention when he actually shot the ball. Predictably, he missed the shot and the rebound came to my area. However, because I wasn't paying attention, the guy I was supposed to prevent from getting the ball squeaked around me and grabbed it. This isn't the worst part. It gets worse. Because it can always get worse. Not only did he grab the ball, he then went straight up with it and scored the game-winning basket right in front of me. I was too shocked to even foul him. I remember that none of my teammates said anything to me afterward, and I remember the pleading look of disbelief in my coach's eyes as he saw me from the sideline. His eyes sent the message, Really? You had one job to do. There was no way you could mess that up, but you did. How is that even possible? He didn't need to say it, verbally or non-verbally, because I was already saying it to myself. It's experiences like this that add up over the course of an ADHD lifetime to create the sense of inevitable doom and disaster that seemingly always lurk in the background. When people wonder why I can't just enjoy a success or an opportunity for success, it is because they don't know that for my brain, Every opportunity for success is a reminder of a humiliating defeat. Chapter 34. 
It must have been a fluke. My high school basketball experience, fun and painful as it was, was also indirectly linked to a brief glimpse into the world of normal people doing normal things. One of my most enduring memories of high school is walking into my Biology 12 class and my brainiac friend Chris asking me if I had studied. Studied for what? I asked because I had no idea what he was talking about. The unit test was his answer. I still didn't know what he was talking about. Clearly the answer was no. This was my standard answer in high school for any situation that questioned my readiness for tests, assignments, projects, or learning in general. Biology in particular was a struggle in both grades 11 and 12. I remember in grade 12, my in-class activities alternated among falling asleep while attempting to take notes, convincing Chris to lend me his pencil so I could throw it across the room, and pushing Chris's books onto the floor. What a great friend I was in retrospect. Chris was one of the first friends I made when I moved to Langley in grade 8, and he endured the changes in personality that I underwent in high school, from shy wannabe to shy weirdo to shy nonconformist. Our past diverged in many ways, but he was always nice to me. I wish I could say the same thing for myself. Anyway, because of a tournament located four hours away in Kelowna, we would be missing a couple of days of school. Yes! Including another biology unit test. Normally, this wouldn't have crossed my mind as a thing, but for some reason it was on my radar this time. Remember that kid who tried to make the team, but I sabotaged his tryout by accidentally kneeing him in the junk? Ugh, that sentence does not make me sound like a quality person. Thank goodness we don't hold people prisoner for their worst moments. Well, I guess we kind of do, actually, both personally and culturally. People can become known as their worst moment or their best moment, which is why we are surprised when people who are famous for doing good stuff then turn around and do bad stuff, or vice versa. Anyway, this kid, though he wasn't on the team, still wanted to ingratiate himself with several team members. So when one of my teammates approached him about telling us what was on the exam, he was more than happy to help us out. The reason he knew was because he had taken the test the day before. As basketball players who were going to miss the in-class exam, we were going to have to take the test on our own in the counseling office a day early. This kid had already taken it, so he was able to tell us exactly what to study. Keep in mind that I had never studied for something in my life, other than the scrambled cramming I had done for my final exams every year, the only thing that had kept me advancing from grade to grade. So what made me study this time? I think that perhaps it was the excitement that came from doing something wrong and the chance of getting in trouble. What a weird way to motivate someone to study and try hard in school. It's not like this kid told me the answers, he just told me what to study. So I studied and came to school the next day and wrote the exam in an office all by myself in the counseling center. I got 84%. You should have seen my teacher's face as he handed the test back to me. His eyes lingered on me with something between a smirk and an expressionless mask. It's weird how much information we can get from eye contact without words being exchanged. It was as if he was saying, I don't know how you pulled this off, but there's no way you got this mark without cheating. In a way, I guess it was sort of cheating, but not really. Imagine if the teacher had just said in class, make sure you study this and that because it's going to be on the test. We wouldn't look at that as cheating. Am I really trying to justify my actions 25 years later? It appears I am. What really stands out from this event, however, is the feeling I had when I got my test back. I felt surprised, genuinely surprised. I was probably as surprised as my teacher. I remember very distinctly the thought, this must be what it's like for other students. They study, they learn, they do well. 
You might think that this experience of cause and effect was enough to turn my school experience around, leading me to see the value of hard work and preparation, revealing that my brain was capable of learning if I could just do the work. If you think that's what happened, then you, like me, must not have been paying attention because it was an isolated blip on the radar of underachievement that defined my school career.